Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Well, good morning, New Day. Thank you so, so much for being here with us today. Whether you're in person or online, we're so glad that you're here. And let me just say, it is such an honor and a privilege to be able to preach the word of God, to be able to share God's word with all of you today. I'm super, super excited. Now, if you're new, right now as a church, we're studying through the gospel of Matthew. We're taking it slow. We're going step by step, passage by passage. And the section that we find ourselves covering today is Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28, where Jesus teaches us that salvation is for everyone. There are a lot of things out there today that just aren't for everyone. And unfortunately, a lot of people think that salvation is one of them. But today, Jesus isn't only going to tell us, he's also going to show us how salvation really, really is for everyone. But just for one second, I want to go back to something that isn't for everyone. Golf. <laughs> I'm terrible at golf. Uh, if any of you have ever played golf, you know that a lot of country clubs are super, super exclusive. There's a really long list of criteria that you need to meet just to be able to get in. There's hefty initiation prices, tons of yearly dues, and a plethora of expectations that you need to meet, even while you're on the course. Like, you go on the course with jeans, forget about it. You can't play golf in jeans, you gotta wear khakis, and you gotta get that polo and tuck it in, or else you're gonna get kicked out. So. It's pretty, uh, it's not for everybody. One of the most exclusive of all of these clubs that I was looking at is called the Liberty National Golf Club in New Jersey. Isn't that just beautiful? It has an amazing view of the New York City skyline. You can see the Statue of Liberty from the course as well. The club offers lavish dinners every single night. It boasts a full spa. There's an entire fitness center there and get this, this is my favorite part. You don't drive there. You have to take a private boat owned by the company, or you can just casually fly in on your helicopter and land on their helipad. They have one of those at a golf course. Isn't that just crazy? The price of initiation to get in is $500,000. That's the price for your membership. And if that wasn't enough, it's $25,000 a year just to keep your membership. There's other requirements that you need to meet to get in as well, though you're going to be hard-pressed to find out what those are. Uh, I couldn't find out. You have to email their vice president to get the list of what that is. And on the website, it doesn't even list the vice president's email address. So unfortunately, it's so exclusive that I can't even tell you how exclusive it is. So needless to say, talk about exclusive. So I don't play regular golf, but I do play disc golf. Disc golf is a sport where you throw a disc into a basket. The rules themselves almost exactly mimic those of golf, but instead of getting the ball into a hole in as few strokes as possible, you're getting that disc into that basket in as few throws as possible, which normally ends up looking something like this. Got that perfect form. That's exactly how you want to look when you're playing disc golf. Oh. Production, I thought I asked you to edit that and make it look like it went in. Okay, whatever. Either way, I made the next putt, I promise. So, but yeah, disc golf is super, super fun. It's usually played in a public park or in areas that coincide with hiking trails. Occasionally, you'll have to pay to get into one of these parks, and if you do, it's probably not going to be more than 15 bucks, but the majority of these parks are free to play. 
the price of each disc, instead of spending 50 to $500 for a golf club, is only about $8 to $20 per disc, even for the really good ones. It's a super, super easy sport for anybody to get into. And by the way, if you've never gone, absolutely recommend it. It's so, so much fun. Being that disc golf is local and it's fun and it's inexpensive to play, it's clearly a sport for everyone. And I mention this because just as disc golf is a sport for everyone, Jesus in our text today shows us how salvation is for everyone. So let's dive right into it. We're going to see five things in our text today. We're going to see the, uh, the retreat, the request, the response, the resolve, and the reward. We're going to go through each one, one by one, and we're going to start with the retreat. The retreat. We see this in verse 21, where we read, And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now, all throughout Matthew's gospel, Jesus uses the word withdrew to indicate that Jesus' life was in danger. For example, when Jesus was a baby, Herod tried to kill Jesus. And when that happened, Joseph, uh, Joseph withdrew the family to Egypt to protect Jesus. Later in life, when John the Baptist, who was Jesus' cousin and herald, was arrested, there was a real threat that Jesus would be too. So Jesus withdrew into Galilee. Now, unfortunately for Jesus, when he was ministering in a certain town in Galilee, he learned that the Pharisees and the Herodians were conspiring together on how they might destroy him. So he withdrew from that town. So you see, whenever we see the word withdrew, that's Matthew's way of telling us that Jesus' life is in danger. And that's precisely the case here in verse 21. Jesus just had an exchange that we read about last week. He had an exchange with the Pharisees. And according to verse 13, he deeply offended them. And he didn't want to die before God the Father's appointed time. So what did he do? He retreats into Gentile territory, which is a place that the Jewish religious leaders would have avoided like the plague. So in the book of Mark, there's an account of this same story that we're reading about today. And in Mark's gospel, we read that Jesus finds a home for him and his disciples to stay in, and he didn't want anybody to know that he was there. Apparently, he was looking to get some alone time with disciples. It was a rough and rowdy altercation with the Pharisees. Everybody was yelling at him. People were looking for him, and he just wanted to get alone and spend some time with his disciples to prepare for his eventual uh, death and resurrection. But that just wasn't to be, and here's why. When Jesus began his healing ministry, word spread not only throughout Israel, but way beyond that as well. And this is why people came to Jesus from so many different Gentile territories, including Phoenicia, which is where Jesus is right now. That's where Tyre and Sidon were. So when the people from these Gentile territories heard about a healer in town, they naturally flocked to Jesus and Jesus healed their sick. So when they went home back to their hometowns, they had the people that used to be sick who are now healed. And they're naturally just telling everybody all about Jesus, the one who had healed their sick. And this is why, even though Jesus really wanted to keep the news of his arrival contained, we read, yet he could not be hidden. He was just too famous, even outside of Israel. So word spread. Everybody's shouting. They see him. Jesus is here. Jesus is here. Everybody come look. Jesus is here. And there's one person in specific who's shouting, Jesus is here. And that's going to lead us nicely to the second thing we see in our text, which we'll call the request. The request. We see the request in verse 22, where we read, 
And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. We learn in Mark's gospel that it was her little daughter, meaning young. So here's a woman with a little girl who's severely oppressed by a demon. Now, the first time I read through this passage, I just kind of skimmed right by that. And I I was like, okay, what's Jesus going to do? But I had to stop and pause for a second and think, wait, what does it mean to be severely oppressed by a demon? He didn't really describe it here. So what does it mean to be severely oppressed by a demon? Well, in other instances of demonic oppression throughout Matthew's gospel, the demon might cause its victim to be mute or to be blind or to have seizures or to be thrown into the fire to be burned or into the water to drown. And those are just normal cases of demon oppression. But Matthew tells us that this woman's poor daughter wasn't normally oppressed. She was severely oppressed by a demon. So even though we don't know exactly how she suffered, we know how bad that suffering was. And that's why when her mother heard that the healer, Jesus had come to town, she was just absolutely desperate to get to him. So she asked around and she found out where Jesus was staying. And man, when she found out nothing was going to stop her from finding the one that she knew could help her little girl. Now, it was actually really interesting that this mother who was a Canaanite came to Jesus, who was a Jew, for help. And the reason why is because the Canaanites hated the Israelites because it was the Israelites who displaced the Canaanites from their land when they came up out of their slavery in Egypt. When the Israelites arrived in the land of Canaan, there were seven different nations that inhabited that land, one of which was the Canaanites. But God commanded the Israelites to drive these wicked people out of their land so that the Israelites could occupy the land themselves. So you can just imagine how much the Canaanites hated the Israelites. And this is why Matthew says, and behold, whenever Matthew says behold, it means look at the next few words. They're probably going to be really important. Behold the next few words. So he says, and behold, a Canaanite came to Jewish Jesus. He's telling his audience, you're not going to believe what just happened. A Canaanite came to a Jew for help. Friends, this is just something that did not happen back then. But again, you got to remember this woman, she was desperate. All she wanted, she didn't care what people group Jesus came from. All she wanted was to get her daughter the help that she needed. So she overcomes all the hatred that she's supposed to have for Jesus and his disciples. And she pleads with Jesus saying, have mercy on me. Now, when she says, have mercy on me, don't think that she's pleading with Jesus to have mercy on her soul or something like that. That's not actually what's going on here. When she says, have mercy on me, that's simply asking for help. The Greek used indicates that she was making this plea over and over and over and over again. Jesus, please help me. Jesus, take pity on my little girl. Help her, help her. Over and over and over. She had heard all the reports about how Jesus had helped others. And now she's just begging that Jesus would do the same for her daughter too. Now, this is interesting. The Canaanites had their own gods. The Canaanites worshiped El and Baal and Molech. And this woman, no doubt, had sought the help of her gods too. But clearly, her gods weren't able to help. So she came to Jesus and she said, help me, Lord, son of David. She's saying here, my Canaanite gods have been of no help to me. Not at all. So now I need to turn to the Jewish Messiah, who's called the son of David. And that is the request. Jesus, help my little girl. 
Okay, now that we've seen the request, let's now note the response. The response. We see the response in verse 23, where we learn that surprisingly Jesus did not answer her a word. So get this picture in your mind. There's a woman calling out to Jesus, but since he's not answering, she just keeps calling out. She's just over and over again. Remember, she just keep calling out, Jesus, help me, help my little girl. And now the disciples can see that this woman's not going to go anywhere. And she's not going to stop calling out, at least until she gets what she's asking for. So the disciples start begging Jesus now. The disciples start saying, send her away, for she's crying out after us. Meaning, she just won't stop crying out after us. So here's the disciples. They're saying, give her what she wants so that you can just send her away. If you send her away, we're gonna, our ears are going to get some rest from this incessant pleas for help. We're here for rest, Jesus. Remember, we just had all the pressures from the Pharisees back there. There's people looking for us right now. Like, we should go and rest and prepare. Like, we need some quiet. So do what she wants. Heal her daughter. Send her away so that we can get some rest. But Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now note with me that Jesus here, he's not saying that he wouldn't help her. He's only saying that his priority given to him by God the Father was to minister first and foremost to the Jewish people. So, that's the response. Judging by the looks on your faces, you're thinking about that response the same way that I did the first time I read it. What in the world is that? You're not very happy with that response. It appears on the surface that Jesus is being both rude and racist. He declines somebody asking for help, just ignores her. That's rude. And he refuses to help somebody because they're the wrong nationality. That's racist. But here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Just suspend judgment until you hear how the story ends. As we'll see, as we keep working our way through the text, Jesus is actually doing something very, very intentional here. Jesus right here is trying to teach his disciples a lesson. And whatever lesson Jesus wants to teach his disciples is the same lesson that he wants to teach us as well. So just suspend your judgment until you see how the story ends. And with that said, let's move on. After the response comes the resolve. The resolve. So Jesus didn't give the most favorable response, but this doesn't deter in any way this woman's resolve. Again, she's heard of all the things that Jesus has done for others, and she's just absolutely determined to have Jesus do those same things for her daughter as well. So when Jesus didn't, resp didn't respond to her cries for help from a distance, she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. She's not giving up. Jesus' silence won't deter her. So she's thinking, all right, my voice hasn't stopped him in the tracks. Now let's see if throwing my whole body on the ground in front of him will cause him to stop and to help me. So that's exactly what she does. The Greek says that she prostrated herself in front of Jesus. So we get the picture. That means she's literally lying stretched out on the ground with her face pointed downwards in front of Jesus. So even if her calls for help vocally might not have gotten her a response, this act of humility and desperation definitely does. Jesus answered her. He says, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And all of you are like, okay, Jack, we just like, you just had to give me a suspend judgment and I'm having a little bit of a hard time doing that right now. So let me explain this to you because this actually would have made perfect sense to her at the time. 
But if you read this as an American, you're going to conclude that Jesus said something very offensive. If you read it as an American, you'll say, oh my gosh, how could Jesus have just offended her and insulted her by calling her a dog? That's so messed up. But I don't want you to read this as an American. I want you to read this as a first century Jew. In the time of Christ, there were two different Greek words for dog. In English, we have one word for dog. That word is dog. So <laughs> in the time of Christ, there were two words for dog. The first was kunarion, and that referred to one's beloved house dog. So I know a lot of you have dogs. They're at home. They're waiting for you. They're just so excited for you to come back from church. They're waiting for you right now. The second you walked out that door, they were ready for you to come right back in. Their tail's going to be wagging. They're looking for a treat. They're looking for a belly rub. That's your kunarion. That's the dog that's a beloved member of your family. The second type of dog was kuon. And that referred to a despised street dog. This is the dog that you see, and they look like they're about to attack you on the street. You have no idea where it came from. This is a dog that's feeding off of carcasses, and it's feeding off of like garbage that's in the street. So in the time of Christ, if a Jew wanted to insult a Gentile, they'd call them a kuon. They'd call them a despised street dog. But that's not the word that Jesus uses here. The word that Jesus uses is kunarion. He says, a beloved house dog. He's not insulting her, calling her a dog, nor is he refusing to help her, as will become clear shortly. He's simply giving her an illustration that she would have understood right away that would speak to her about his God-assigned priorities while ministering on the earth. Jesus here is saying, hey, parents must prioritize their children. They love their kids and they love their household pets. But when it comes to feeding them, the parents feed the kids first. In the same way, he says, I'm called by God to pr prioritize the Jewish people over the Gentile people. I love both the Jew and the Gentile. But when it comes to who I was sent to minister to, the Jews come first. So you see, Jesus isn't saying, I won't help you. He's just speaking to her of his priorities. And that's exactly what he was doing back with his disciples a couple verses ago. Well, after Jesus explains his priorities, the woman looks up to Jesus from where she's lying on the ground. And picture it, she's still lying on the ground. So she looks up to Jesus and she says, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And I cannot tell you how much I just love that response. It's literally the perfect response. When she says, yes, Lord, she's saying, Jesus, I totally get your priorities. I know that you're the son of David. I know that you're the Jewish Messiah. And I'm not trying to take you away from your God-assigned priorities of ministering to the Jews. But if I could just borrow your own illustration for one second, I just want to borrow that for one minute. The pets in a home are also loved. And after the children are fed, the pets get fed too. So Jesus, won't you please heal my daughter? So we see the resolve. And it was this woman's resolve that led to the final thing we see in our text today, which is the reward. The reward. Look with me at verse 28. It says, Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Now Mark's account of the same event says, and she went home and she found the child, her precious little girl, lying in bed and the demon, gone. It's just gone. So clearly this woman had impressed Jesus. But how did she do that? Well, 
She impressed him because she had faith. This woman had faith that just as Jesus had helped other people from her country, Jesus would help her too. This woman had faith that even though she was a Canaanite, which is, again, a member of the people group that the Jews that hated the Jews, Jesus would just look past that and help her daughter anyway. This woman had faith that even when Jesus didn't initially respond, he eventually would. And she had faith that even though Jesus's priority was to the Jews, that Jesus loved the Gentiles as well, and in the end would help her daughter. So Jesus rightly says, great is your faith and then rewarded her faith by granting her requests. And when I studied this passage, I was just so, so happy that a person who just demonstrated such great faith and showed such great resolve ended up having her daughter healed. Okay, so that's the text. So now, do you remember at the beginning of the message how I told you that disc golf is a sport for everyone? Well, through the story that we just went through, Jesus is trying to teach his disciples how to play disc golf. He's trying to teach his disciples that just like disc golf is, for, is a sport for everyone, salvation is for everyone. And when he tries to teach that to his disciples, that's ultimately what he's trying to teach us as well. But if we're to understand the lesson Jesus has for us, first, we need to understand it in the context that the disciples would have. And to do that, we're going to begin with a reminder of God's plan of salvation. When mankind sinned against God, bringing upon himself the judgment of death, God came up with a plan for how mankind could be saved from that penalty. And that plan involved a man named Abraham. God gave three promises to Abraham. He said, promise number one, I'm going to turn you into a great big nation, meaning I'm going to give you a lot of descendants. He said, promise number two, I'm going to give that great big nation a great big chunk of land. And number three, he said, one day out of that nation and out of that great big chunk of land, I'm going to bring forth a savior to save mankind for the penalty of sin. God's plan was that, was that salvation would come to Abraham's descendants, who were the Jews, and that in turn, the Jews would bring the wonderful news of salvation to the rest of the world. As God told the nation through his prophet Isaiah, he said, I will make you a light to the Gentiles and you will bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. So God's plan was never that salvation would be limited to the Jewish people, but rather that the Jewish people having received the good news of salvation would bring it to the rest of the world, or as Isaiah put it to the ends of the earth. But unfortunately, by the time of Christ, the Jews had lost sight of that mission. By the time of Christ, the Jews of the day didn't look lovingly on the Gentiles as to whom they were called to minister to. They hated the Gentiles. And you know what? They actually thought they were pleasing God by staying as far away from the Gentiles as possible. So when Jesus came, oh my goodness, did he have his work cut out for him. He had to show the Jewish people that even though they were God's priority in terms of who would receive the message of salvation first, salvation wasn't just for them. So Jesus, the son of David, the Jewish Messiah, would minister time and time and time again to the Gentiles to remind his people that salvation was for the Gentiles too. Let me give you a few examples of Jesus doing this. When in Matthew 4, Jesus arrived in Capernaum, he did so to shine his heavenly light in a land formerly referred to as Galilee of the Gentiles. In Matthew chapter 8, a Roman centurion came to Jesus, asking him to heal his servant who was lying at home paralyzed, and Jesus healed him. 
Now, the Romans were oppressing the Jews at the time, so the Jews naturally were not very happy about that. They were shocked. So Jesus told them, look, I hate to disappoint, but the reality is that many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus says that people from east and west will enjoy the kingdom of heaven, he's talking about Gentiles, the people who lived in the east and west of Israel. Also in Matthew chapter 8, when Jesus encountered two demon-possessed men in the country of the Gadarenes, which was Gentile territory, Jesus healed them. In Matthew chapter 12, Matthew says that Jesus' ministry fulfilled this prophecy made by Isaiah, that he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles, and in his name, the Gentiles will hope. And that brings us to today, where Jesus ministers once again to a Gentile. Jesus repeatedly stated his priority as being to the Jews, but then went on to minister to this Gentile woman to show his disciples that just because his priority was to the Jews, his overall mission was to the world. Yes, God had raised up Abraham and the Jewish people, and he brought the message of salvation to them first, but God made his purpose in doing so very, very clear to Abraham. God told Abraham, I'm doing this so that in you, all the families of earth shall be blessed. So we see that salvation was not just for the Jews. Salvation is for everybody. And this encounter with the Canaanite woman, along with all the others we just covered, were all intended to prepare his disciples for the commandment that Jesus would eventually give them, which was called the Great Commission. And that command is that they are to go and make disciples of all nations. This lesson that Jesus' salvation is for everyone was Jesus' lesson to his disciples, and this is his lesson to us as well. But how do we apply this lesson to our lives today? Well, it's simple. We do what Jesus would eventually command his disciples to do. We go and make disciples of all nations. That is, we don't keep the gospel to ourselves. We share the gospel. We can't make the same mistake as the Jews of Jesus' day in thinking that our salvation is just for us. Because of the Jews' complacency, there were Gentiles everywhere who had never heard about Jesus. They had never heard about God. They didn't know him. Remember, they worshiped El and Baal and Molech. They didn't know anything about the one true God until Jesus came and ministered to them too. The Gentiles were in the darkness until Jesus and eventually Jesus' followers shared the light with them. And sadly, many of our friends and our family members and our classmates and our coworkers are in the darkness today too. And even though we've been given the great co-mission, many of us are treating it as the great omission. That is, instead of sharing the gospel, we're keeping it to ourselves. We're standing idly by and hoping that our loved ones will just figure it out on their own. So instead of omitting this command that Jesus gave us, we're to act upon it. So how does this play out in our day-to-day lives? Well, teenagers, when you're hanging out with your friends or when you're at school, if Jesus comes up in conversation, are you talking about Jesus with people? Are you sharing the good news of salvation with your friends and family members? Or are you shying back, trying to change the subject and trying to, you know, you're embarrassed to be a Christian. If you're an employee at a company, are you inviting your coworkers to church? Or do you sit and think about how much your coworkers need Jesus 
that you don't actually do anything to help them find them. If you're a small business owner, do you use the opportunity that you have to share the good news with your clients? Or would your clients be surprised to find out that you're a Christian? And if you're retired, are you sharing the good news about Jesus with your friends and your family members? Or have you decided that you're just okay with the way that things are right now? I want to let that sink in for a minute. Now I want to encourage you because wherever you are in life right now, whatever uh, season God has you in right now, whatever location physically God has you in right now, there are people who need to hear about the love of Jesus. There are people who are ready to hear about the love of Jesus. We might not know it. They might not know it, but the Holy Spirit works in all of us. So when God calls us to share the gospel, that's our job to share the gospel with people. So by way of encouragement, I want to give you one quick example. I just want to show you how somebody sharing the gospel can make such a huge impact. I want to talk about my friend named Seth today. Seth, one day at his kid's soccer game, met this dude named Rocco. Seth was talking to this dude named Rocco and eventually brought the conversation to the topic of Jesus. Seth invited Rocco to church, and what did Rocco do? He came to church. And at church, Rocco heard the gospel for the very first time, and Rocco gave his life to Christ. So now Rocco's saved, and a lot of you probably know Seth, and a lot of you probably know Rocco as well. Rocco serves on the worship team and at guest services. So now, Rocco leaves church on Sunday. Rocco's so excited about Jesus. So he goes to work, and he starts talking to his friend Steve. Rocco shares the gospel with Steve. Rocco invites Steve to church. Steve shows up. What does Steve do? Steve gave his life to Christ. After that, Steve went out to his friends, his family members, his coworkers, and Steve's telling all of them all about the gospel. Several of them have come to New Day and gotten saved as well. And then even their friends have come to New Day and gotten saved. Steve and Rocco and all their friends and their family members, they've all been saved by putting their faith in Jesus. But hear me out. They didn't figure it out on their own. It all started with Seth, just sharing his faith with a buddy at a soccer game. In Romans, the Apostle Paul writes, but how can they call on him, Jesus, to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And here's the part that I really want you to hear. And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? New Day, we need to be tellers. We need to tell people about Jesus so that they can be saved. We need to invite people to church or to tune in online so that they can put their faith in Jesus, just like we have. And we're not doing this to check off the, oh, I, got say, I, I shared my faith today, or I shared my faith this week box. We're not checking off a box. We're doing this because we love our friends and we love our family members and our coworkers and our classmates. And we know the assurance of salvation that we have. We know that we have the assurance of an eternity in heaven. And that's what we want our friends and our family members to have as well. Now, I know that sometimes it can be scary or uncomfortable to share your faith. Trust me, I know I'm standing on the stage right now doing it for the first time ever and it's terrifying. But I just want to encourage you by saying that God has actually already equipped you to do this. You're already equipped. God has placed his Holy Spirit in each and every single one of us who's a believer. And when you ask the Spirit to give you the words to say, he will. When you ask the Spirit to give you the opportunities to share your faith, he will. 
So that first step in sharing your faith, just pray for the Holy Spirit to give you the words to say. Now, I don't want to send you out and say, all right, here's what to do and not give you any pointers on how to do it. So in terms of practicality, I want to give you just a few examples of how you can very easily steer a conversation towards Jesus. Earlier this morning, Peter shared about our new location in Aguam. And let me tell you, starting a new church location is a great way to segue a conversation into a conversation about Jesus. If somebody greets you with the question, what's new? By the way, that's the dreaded question. I don't know about any of you. When somebody asks me, what's new? I'm like, I don't know. I woke up, I ate breakfast, went to the gym, listened to a sermon, went to work and went home. I'm like, five days a week, nothing's new. There is something new. We're starting a new location in Agawam. So I don't know if you dread that question or not, but whether you do or not, when somebody asks it to you, hey, what's new? Oh, we're starting a new location in Agawam this fall. You want to join me when it opens up? You just invited somebody to church. Or when your friend asks, hey, do you have any weekend plans? You could say, yeah, I'm going to church Sunday morning. You want to join me? Easy as that. You just invited somebody to church. Now, there are also times that somebody might directly ask you why you go to church. Why would you even go? Why do you spend a couple hours every single Sunday? Why don't you just sleep in? Isn't that what Sundays are for, sleeping in? Why would you go to church in the first place? Now, I know a lot of you are fans of The Chosen. I love The Chosen. Love their slogan, though. The slogan, come and see. Hey, why do you even go to church? Come and see. That's just a couple of ways that you can steer a conversation towards Jesus and start sharing your faith with people. Now, I just want to let all of you know that I pray so, so often for all of you. I pray for your own spiritual health. I pray for any spiritual warfare that you're going through. And I also pray that you're going to have such a crazy big love for those around you that you just won't be able to resist sharing your faith with them. Because you know that, again, salvation is not just for you. Salvation is not just for me. Salvation is for everyone. So to end the message for today, I just want to pray over all of you, for God to bless all of you as you go out into all the nations and share the gospel. So if you would, let's all bow our heads, close our eyes, and just allow me to pray for all of you today. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word today. Thank you, that, thank you for assuring us that when we place our faith in Jesus to forgive us for our sins, God, we're saved. Today, God, we come before you and ask that you'd help us not to keep this message of salvation to ourselves, but to share it with everyone around us because we know that salvation isn't just for us. We know that salvation is for everyone. God, give us opportunities to share our faith and don't allow us to harbor a spirit of timidity, God, but let us be strong and courageous knowing that you've already equipped us for the task that you've given us. God, give us a passion to share your word out of love for others. God, remind us every single day that when people hear your word, they have a chance to respond in faith and be saved. God, I pray for your blessing over each and every single person listening today. Help us to follow in Jesus' example today and every day. Work in us and through us as only you can, not for our own glory, but for yours. We love you and we praise you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
Well, amen. Did he do a good job? And what a powerful, powerful message. It inspires me to go and tell, like he said. And aren't you thankful that salvation is for everyone? I don't know about you, I'm not Jewish. <laughs> so, especially after a sermon, a Gentile like me, so thankful that salvation is for everyone. The Bible is so clear about this, that not only is salvation for everyone, but the Bible says this, all have sinned and fall short of God's glorious standard. So I want you to think of the most holy person you know. It's probably Mike Sorsonelli, our lead pastor. So just put him right up there. He's way up there on the list. He sinned. Andrew sinned. Jack sinned. Anybody walking the earth apart from Jesus himself has sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. And I'm so thankful that salvation is for all because all have sinned and fall short. The Bible says that God is a holy God. He is a just God. He's a perfect God. And your sin, even if it was one little baby sin, not even that big of a deal to you, it would separate you from a holy God. It keeps his beloved creation, you and me, from him. That thing called sin is the separator. But until you get depressed before you do, God's always had a plan. And if you ever walked into a room like this room, or maybe you're watching online for the very first time because someone told you to, they said, go to live.newdaychurch.cc. Make sure you go to this church. You have to hear this message. Here's the message. If you ever thought that you weren't loved, can I tell you today, you are deeply loved by the creator of the universe who said, you know what? Even when you were a sinner, even when you were steeped in that thing that separates you from God, he said, I'm going to send my son for that one. That one's worth my son, Jesus Christ. I want that sinner so bad that I will put my own sinless, spotless lamb, Jesus, the son of David, the Messiah for the whole world. I'll put him on a cross. I'll allow him to die. He doesn't deserve it, but he'll be the atoning sacrifice. That is, he will be the sacrifice that allows a sinner like you and a sinner like me a place at the table with God. There's no greater news in the world. If you want to know what the gospel is, it's not just the good news, if you ask me. It's the greatest news. Because when I couldn't get to the God who, who's my creator, who loves me, and I couldn't get to him on my own, there was always a way. And the way is Jesus. If you've never experienced the salvation, we're not just here playing church at New Day. There's a reason why a guy like Seth says, come to church, and a guy like Rocco says, come to church, and a guy like Steve says, come to church come to church. It's not the church, it's the Jesus you can meet here. And so if you're here today and you've never met him in that way, but you know you're ready, here's what I want you to do. It's a decision of the heart. Take that welcome card, you'll find it near you. There's a seat that has it. Just let us know that today you're deciding in your heart. You're saying, I want to make Jesus my Lord and my Savior. That is, I want Jesus to lead my life. I want to place my faith in him that he died on a cross in my place, that he rose from the grave so it shows he can truly do this task, this task of defeating sin and death, and I don't have to worry about that any longer. And then God has a wonderful plan. Not only are you secured in heaven, but then he has a wonderful, beautiful plan for your life. Thanks for experiencing this message with us. Do you want more New Day Church in your life? Well, please like and subscribe on YouTube and follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Want to take a next step in your faith? Our Church Center app is the best place to get more connected. So just download the free app on your app store today and be sure to choose New Day Church in Enfield, Connecticut. 
We are able to offer this sermon and all others like it only because of your faithful financial support. Thank you to all of you who so faithfully give each week. If you feel led to support our ministry financially, just go to our website at newdaychurch.cc forward slash give. Thank you in advance. May God richly bless you, and we hope to see you again real soon.